Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bartflies, a podcast about samurai, cinematography, and what happens when Shakespeare collides with medieval Japan. In this week's minisode, we'll be talking about two of director Akira Kurosawa's masterpieces, 1957's Throne of Blood, based on Macbeth, and 1985's Ron, based on King Lear. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is Minisode 6, Kurosawa on Shakespeare. James, you're a cineast, film producer, sometime habitué of Hollywood and uh, (laughs) other points in the filmmaking universe. You work in the industry, I believe they say. Uh, I work in what's known as the motion picture business, Will. The the talkies. Uh, so my question for you, James, is Kurosawa, kind of a big deal. Can you give us a little bit of background on him, just for listeners that may not be familiar with his, uh, his work? Sure. Well, Kurosawa is... I mean, the name Kurosawa is to Japanese cinema what the name Fellini is to Italian cinema. Or, you know, he's one of these... You know, think of people like, names like Orson Welles, David Lean, John Ford, Vittorio De Sica. He's in this firmament of truly top, top, like most famous, most celebrated filmmakers in the world of the last hundred years. And he additionally is significant in being... I would say the definitely the most famous, but one of a group of very, very famous and significant Japanese filmmakers specifically who really introduced Japanese cinema to the world. And, you know, a couple of those other filmmakers would be like Mizoguchi or Yasushiro Ozu. But there was this group of kind of mid-20th century filmmakers who really brought Japanese cinema to the fore of international cinema recognition, I guess. So Kurosawa begins his career, I believe, in the late 30s, and then does a couple, I think, definitely at least one, and I think two propaganda movies for the Japanese government during World War II, but but like really rises to prominence after the war, and in particular with the release of a movie called Rashomon, which is, uh, you know, again, I, I feel like I've used the superlative many times, but is one of the most famous works of kind of mid-century cinema, I believe won the Cannes Film Festival in, I think, 1951. But Rashomon was really, really significant in being a movie where Kurosawa was challenging the subjectivity, like the idea of the subjectivity of cinema. And that's some, excuse me, challenging the idea of the objectivity of cinema. And it was like really stressing the subjectivity of the lens and of, of what, a movie is representing to you. And I think now we're, you know, we're used to that idea. You know, I think even a movie like Memento is playing with the, with some of the same ideas. But Rashomon was really the first movie, I think, to inject that idea into the consciousness of the public. So Rashomon is really the, the movie that introduces Kurosawa to the world and makes him an internationally renowned figure. And it's after that that he makes Throne of Blood. He makes Ron much later. And, you know, Will, if I can just say in terms of what he's generally known for, Kurosawa in particular is known for these stories of medieval Japan, you know, samurai, you know, movies like Yojimbo, The Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood is in the same, both Throne of Blood and Ron are in the same 
tradition, uh, movies where he's interested in the Bushido code and these questions of loyalty and honor that are so central to that culture. So that's Kurosawa in brief. Did, did I answer your question? Yeah, I think that answers it quite well. So a little bit of kind of high concept, high art, film, auteur. He's in that class of Fellini, Godard, Orson Welles, you know, John Huston type. Very but also so. does a lot of these immensely entertaining but very well-made samurai pictures that usually have something more going on than just being pure kind of titillation and action sequences. Absolutely. A much better summary than what I was able to provide. Well, well no, yours was, yours was certainly more informative. Uh, mine was high concept auteur plus samurai. That seems a little bit, uh, a little bit unfair to the man's legacy. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that speaking of samurai, both these movies are samurai pictures, uh, though they are adaptations of Shakespeare. And I, I think maybe we should, you know, so Throne of Blood comes first and Ron comes much later in his career. So I think let's talk about them in that order. So can you... Just give us a quick summary of Throne of Blood and what it's doing with Shakespeare. Sure. Yeah. So Throne of Blood basically takes the story of Macbeth, imposes it into or superimposes it into medieval Japan, as you said. It's uh, It came out in 1957. It was sort of, uh, I believe Kurosawa had actually planned to do it much earlier, but he learned that Orson Welles, of all people, had done a version of Macbeth in the late 1940s. So he actually delayed production uh, and kept working on it while doing other films in the meantime. But in essence, the the picture is about the Macbeth analog Washizu and his wife, Lady Washizu, and his friend Mickey, uh, who's the Banquo analog. And they're loyal soldiers to the daimyo, to the great lord in their medieval kingdom in Japan. There's uprisings and rebellion, just as there are in the opening of Macbeth. Washizu puts down those rebels and is promoted, but not before he encounters a witch or evil spirit in Spider's Web Forest, which is the forest that surrounds the, the big castle that he ultimately ends up you know, taking over. At any rate, his wife hears about the prophecies and can talk about this in greater detail, but more or less convinces him to kill the Duncan character, the great lord, and then ultimately the play continues following the beats of Macbeth. Stylistically, it's all black and white. Uh, it's inspired aesthetically, at least partially, by no, the Japanese theater style, which is one of the traditional kinds of, of Japanese theater. Um, it's a little bit different than kabuki, which is a little bit more um, ostentatious and expressive. No is known for you know masks and rapid changes of movement. You know, you'll be mm -hmm. very, very placid, and then there'll be a sudden change in sort of stance. There's often traditional flutes and drumming in the background, which is also featured in this one. There's lots of mist rolling in through the hills. There's a fortress that I believe is built partially using um, using U.S. military labor in Japan on, on the side of a mountain for some of the climactic battle scenes. It's overall, it tracks very closely with the plot, but there are some important differences in how Kurosawa takes up the plot of Macbeth and, and brings it to Japan. But those are sort of the aesthetic considerations. The main differences that you really see in the picture from Macbeth itself is Lady Washizu is a lot more directive and overt in manipulating her husband, who's played by Toshiro uh, Nagune. Mufuni. Mufuni. Toshiro Mufuni. Yes, Toshiro Mufuni, who's amazing in this, like incredible facial expressions. I mean, 
really you get the sense of um, the emotional turmoil and anguish that he goes through throughout it and his wife is sort of haunting and ethereal. Mm-hmm. And then similarly, instead of the ending being sort of a single combat with um, the Macbeth character and the, the Macduff character, you know, somewhat famously, Wishizu is killed by his own men. He gets shot full of arrows in the, the final scenes of the film, which we can talk about all of those differences there. But that's sort of the general gist of the film. Spoilers and all, though obviously if you've read Macbeth or devoted listeners who have listened to our Macbeth episode will know, beat for beat, more or less, what um, where these things end up. But at any rate, so I've illustrated the differences, and I think the differences are always really interesting in an adaptation. What did you take away from the changes that Kurosawa made in this picture? And do you have anything to sort of add to the aesthetic gloss I just gave you uh, on Throne of Blood? On the aesthetic, no, I think I think you covered it well. I mean, I would say, Will, I'd be interested to know your, your feeling about this, but, you know, to me, the most effective piece of the film was probably the first 20 or so minutes you know, and, and that's that's the the sequence where he's in the forest and sort of immediately thereafter, and you you get those amazing shots of the horses kind of disappearing into and out of the mist, and, and you know you sort of have these walls of fog. It's very moody, and um, what's the word? It's very moody and almost expressionistic. Gloomy. Yeah, you know? very much so, and that that really felt like it mapped onto the aesthetics of Macbeth the play in a very nice way. Whereas some, I think some of the some of the middle of the film can have a little bit more loses a little bit of that aesthetic connection and and has a little bit less of that sentiment in it. I think, uh, which isn't you know, which isn't a knock on that. It's just I really felt it very strongly in, in those early sequences. But to me, the thing that was most interesting and significant in the changes are the two things you mentioned about the ending and about the. Washizu and Lady Asahi relationship. And, I, and the one that I really wanted to key in on, because I think it also informs the ending, is the changes to to the Macbeth analog. Because I, I was... I mean, you, you tell me how, how you felt about it, Will, but my experience watching this was... It, like, it really felt like what was happening here was that Kurosawa was taking Shakespeare, but applying to it the things that he was interested in or, or what he thought was like a more essential plot in some way. And I think it was striking that in this version, it seems like Washizu is a much more straightforwardly honorable or a, maybe I should say more like rep, seems to represent initially much more of an ideal of what the honorable Lord is and that he's really pushed by his wife to go down the course that he does. Yeah, yeah, Whereas definitely. in Macbeth mm-hmm. the play, I feel like, and again, tell me if you disagree, but I, my impression reading the play or my feeling in the play is that Macbeth already has this great ambition, right? And what Lady Macbeth is doing is not so much introducing the idea and like really trying to push him to do it, but it's her idea and much more that she knows that he is hesitant for various reasons but that he wants to do it. And it feels like she's enabling and activating that part of him to give him the wherewithal to do the thing that she knows he wants to do. Whereas in this movie, it really feels like Asahi is the origin of the plot, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's the one who says to him, oh, you know, you became the ruler of Fort One, just like the witch said, you should go and 
make the second part of the prophecy happen. She plays a lot on his fears about, well, you know, he, Mickey is going to tell the great Lord that you guys had this encounter in the woods and then he's not going to be merciful to you. Yeah. He's going to kill you anyways, right? So it feels like there's a lot more manipulation here rather than in Macbeth where, not that Lady Macbeth isn't manipulative, I guess, but I don't think she's manipulative in the same way. I think in Macbeth, it's more getting him to do the thing he wants to do. And here it feels like it's more Lady Asahi pushing him into doing something that he kind of fundamentally doesn't want to do. And I think you see that with the Banquo, or I should say with the Mickey character as well, in the way that that happens and the thing of Lady Asahi becoming pregnant. And to me, it felt like the result of that clearly was going towards something that Kurosawa was interested in, but also I felt like it made it much less complex and interesting yeah yeah to just develop that last point a little bit i mean she pushes him twice right she pushes him to murder you know the great lord and then afterwards right you alluded to this he decides that he wants to name mickey's son as the heir to him when he dies to succeed as the great lord after Wishizu dies basically and he says you know this is my best friend's son my wife is infertile we can't have children you know so it's actually a rather magnanimous gesture considering he just you know butchered you know <laughs> butchered his boss and you know killed the guards after drugging them with sake he's actually much less you you don't really get that in the macbeth play right there's a lot more of an instrumental approach to everything i think in the play where macbeth basically recognizes banquo as a threat and drives towards consolidating power in that way in this he's almost takes a step back and is like no i'm actually good with just ruling for this period of time you know it's fine i'm happy with that so there's there's definitely something interesting there about the degree to which she weighs in the only other thing i'd add there is just there's um that incredible sequence where he goes to murder the king he's sitting in this room with his wife and it's the guest room of their castle basically where they're hosting uh, the great lord and they've moved out of the master bedroom into this sort of guest bedroom that is uh the home of the former lord of this castle and it's spattered with blood on the walls you know after he killed the guy had killed himself the previous owner so it's just very ominous and powerfully done but i agree with you it's sending a slightly different message than macbeth the play itself in sort of the characterizations and the motivation completely agree there yeah and what's interesting i mean i guess i wonder will if it had to be that way i mean i think it's obvious that by the end Right, so both at the beginning of the play and at the end of the play, Kurosawa has this chanting song playing, mm-hmm. right? And it's sort of over these impressionistic images of the burned-out castle and all that. And the subject of the song is ambition. It's talking about how ambition led this great lord to ultimately be to his own destruction, right? And yet I don't really feel like that's what this movie is about. I think that's very much what Macbeth is about. But this movie feels like it's more about failures of leadership and immoral leadership and what happens as a result of that. And I think you see that even going into the final act where Washizu is suffering these uh, the abandonments of various garrisons, right, who are going over to his enemies. It has that feel of that scene in Richard III, right, where all of a sudden messengers are coming from the four corners of the kingdom saying that this person's in revolt and that person's in revolt and also the French have landed and it felt 
more of, of that type than of the Macbeth type, where Macbeth weirdly by the end of the play is much stronger as a character right is like mm. less timid and is leading his men into battle and, and is filled with his great confidence and obviously Washizu has that confidence as well but it's presented more as madness almost I feel like here or delusion yeah. and yeah. so what this feels like it ends up being about is really more about how Washizu's letting himself be led down this bad path has caused him to lose the trust of his soldiers, his subordinate lords, etc. And then that culminates in his being executed by his own men. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that one thing that I'd add to that to sort of the point in favor of it being a kind of madness is when um, he is coming back from murdering the great lord, he's almost in a catatonic state. And Mifune had just has incredible, incredible facial expressions uh, throughout this, which are sort of mirroring the no mask tradition in um, Japanese theater to a certain extent, or so I have read on Wikipedia and other and other sources. The only but, source consulted for <laughs> uh, for the Bardflies podcast. No, not, not, not quite true, but true enough in essence. But Mifune, he's... It's an emotional truth, Will. It's meant to be taken uh, seriously, but not literally. But he's clutching a spear, and literally his wife has to pry his fingers loose from the bloody spear. He's just sort of sitting there in a daze. And towards the end, it's almost a kind of um, a madness and a, and a rage. But uh, the scene where his men turn on him really is incredible. I mean, they're firing arrows through uh, into the castle at him. He's sort of shouting at them that to portray the great lord is a great dishonor uh, and is punishable by death. Obviously, there's great irony in that statement coming from him. And given that Kurosawa, one of his major themes is a preoccupation with loyalty and sort of right behavior and obligation, it becomes very clear that the chickens have come home to roost, so to speak. Um, but yeah, as the arrows are sort of going through, it's this incredible scene to watch in a lot of ways, partially because I understand that actually trained archers were shooting volleys into the wall. This is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. Yeah, it, like, like you know, could could seriously have injured. There's a serious workers' comp claim that yes. uh, Toshiro Mifune needs to be making. After yes, no, totally. This scene. is like I don't know if they had OSHA in post-war Japan, you know, at this stage, but um, strong, strong claim for unsafe work environment. People want to talk about a hostile work environment. Just wait till your boss is shooting volleys of arrows uh, at you. But it's incredible because they keep shooting them through this wall. They're puncturing and it's like right by Mifune's face. And uh, he's waving his arms around, you know, which, of course, adds to the chaos of the scene, but apparently is actually him signaling, you know, above the screen of the wall to the archers where his body actually is and to, like, not shoot there. So um, you can't say that uh, people weren't willing to suffer for their art on this picture. Well, you mentioned Washizu's yelling at his soldiers about how betrayal is is treason and how they can't do this and it's wrong, et cetera. And that, that keyed me on this. Can I quickly share my sort of film critical theory about this movie? Please, please do. So as I mentioned in my little very brief gloss on Kurosawa at the beginning of the episode, right? Kurosawa, you know, he's making this movie in 1957. Kurosawa has been active as a filmmaker since the 30s and made propaganda films for the Japanese government during World War II. And so... It was difficult for me to watch this scene and watch this movie with its great emphasis on loyalty and also on, particularly in the scene you're talking about or that we're talking about, 
with the men turning on him and the clear irony of the sense of like he one he hasn't been loyal and two his own poor leadership and bad decisions and immoral leadership has led to this moment it was very difficult for me to watch that and not wonder if some of this is Kurosawa's commentary on mm. the behavior of the Japanese leadership in World War II. Now, this is a completely unsubstantiated theory. I have not done research on this. But uh, given the time and the details of Kurosawa's biography, it was an idea that presented itself to me watching yeah. this movie. Yeah, I mean, it would be surprising, right, in post-war Japan, which um, had a major cultural shift from this sort of imperial expansion and sort of... Um, you know, attitudes of kind of aggrandizement and sort of militarism. It would be shocking if post-war Japan, which was a correction in many respects of, of those tendencies, you wouldn't have had some expression of this. And I do think like violence and, you know, cycles of violence are definitely a preoccupation of Kurosawa's across multiple films that he does, you know, in addition to themes of honor and duty and obligation and sort of what right leadership looks like. It's very clear that he's realistic and offering almost a cautionary tale about where these types of situations can lead. It would be hard to watch this, I feel like, without World War II and just bad leadership in war on your mind, you know, particularly if you were if you were Japanese. But yeah, I haven't read anything to substantiate that, but it seems like a very credible theory to me. On that note, Will, speaking of violence in war, I think we should turn our attention to Ron, which is a, a, a later masterpiece of Kurosawa's. And, you know, there are striking similarities, I think, between the movies mm. in maintaining the same samurai setting, similar themes I think he's exploring, though in different ways, and also very striking aesthetic differences. Most obviously, where Throne of Blood is black and white, Ron is in the most vivid color you could possibly imagine a film to be in. Much more just lavish production value than, than Throne of Blood. And much more also... Not that Throne of Blood is not conscientiously staged, but Throne of Blood feels, I think, a little bit more naturalistic in the way it's filmed. Or at least it feels a little bit less... I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, all the words that are coming to mind sound bad, and I don't, I don't mean this in that way. But Ron is filmed in a much more deliberate, highly staged, very painterly manner, whereas Throne of Blood, it feels like there, there's a little bit more improvisation maybe yeah. or, or yeah, a, little, yeah. a little bit more flexibility to the camera and to be clear i don't mean that i'm not saying that one is better than the other it's just like they do create different impressions I think. yeah I, I think here's what here's how i describe the difference between them i view both of them as highly stylized i think that throne of blood feels almost a little bit more like a stage production mm-hmm. not like entirely static camera positions and everything, but it's much more, um, it's composed in a more static. Subdued. It's a little bit more subdued. Maybe that's exactly. the way to put it. Exactly. Yeah. And it feels, you know, if, if one of the inspirations is kind of this formalistic Japanese theater style, it, it definitely feels a little bit more like that. Ron feels like a massive motion picture designed with kind of a painterly yeah. eye trying to realize all the potential of you know a cast of thousands or specifically in this case 1200 extras plus the principal cast 200 horses 
massive castles, special effects, dramatic backdrops, shooting on location, the full retinue and toolkit of a filmmaker in his prime in some ways with like all of the, the height of his powers. But I feel like I might be getting, we might be getting a little ahead of ourselves. Do you want to just give us the gloss on the plot before we dive a little bit more into what makes this film pretty striking? Yeah, absolutely. Just give us the background and sort of how it connects to Lear. So this is his Lear adaptation, but he has made some notable alterations to the plot of Lear. And and I think for the most part, the things that he's done with Lear are kind of streamlining and trimming out fat. So it's much more focused on the storyline of Lear himself and the three here sons. So Hidetoro is the Lear analog, and rather than three daughters, he has three sons. And so it's really focused on the dynamics of that and the B-plot of Lear with the Edmund-Edgar side of things uh, and Gloucester is completely gone. Or not, maybe not completely. I mean, I think the Lady Kaide and Sue stuff is filling some of that same role, but it's much more submerged. And the Hidetoro plot is much more clearly the center of the action of, of this movie, which to me actually I think helped. Like I think it really streamlined and made it more effective and comprehensive. Mm. Anyway, so what I found very interesting when I was reading up again on Wikipedia, Will, about this movie is that apparently the original source material, the original idea was not to do Lear itself exactly, but... Kurosawa was very interested in this legend of a Japanese daimyo who had three very, very talented sons. And he had this idea of like, well, what if instead of three very talented sons, he actually had three evil sons? And so that was his original genesis for it. But it didn't really come to anything until he discovered the play King Lear. And it seems like King Lear basically gave him the structure with which to think about how this could play out. And so so the movie is using the Shakespearean plot to explore this other legend that Kurosawa was very interested in. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about that in a little bit, but I just I thought that was a really fascinating blending of the cultures and the and the source material for this. Anyway, what happens is what happens is at the beginning of the film, Hidetoro seems to come to this realization that he's too old and he has to give up his power and he resolves to give it up to his three sons, but it's not quite like in the play where Lear is literally dividing the kingdom. It's more like he's giving each of them a little patrimony, but trying to be like, oh no, but you have to be loyal to your eldest brother also. Of course, Saburo, who's the Cordelia character here, is like, this is a terrible idea, you know, and that leads to his being cast out. He goes and marries the daughter of another like rival warlord, and then, of course, the unspooling begins and, you know, Lear says he's going to maintain his retinue of 100 samurai who are loyal to him. He's going to live with his eldest son, Taro, and then he's going to go spend time with his second son, Jiro. And a little bit as in Throne of Blood, what catalyzes the action here is that Taro's wife, Lady Kaide, basically tells him, you got to stop being so deferential to your father. Like, you're the Lord here now, not him. And that leads him to depart. And essentially, it seems like Taro wants to take control for himself. Jiro wants power for himself as well. And so therefore, they team up to kill all of 
Hidetoro's remaining retinue of samurai. And Hidetoro then goes mad. He refuses to go and find Saburo, his youngest son, the one, the Cordelia analog. And it all culminates in a battle at the end where Saburo returns with his army and with the army of his now of his father-in-law. Taro has been killed already. Jiro has taken control. And then Jiro's forces are defeated, but Saburo is killed by some marksmen on the heath, essentially. You know, so it has the same tragic end where, you know, Lear finally achieves reconcil or Hidotoro finally achieves reconciliation with Saburo and and their side wins in quotes, but in the end both Saburo and Lear are killed. Did, did that did that sort of cover the bases, Will? Yeah, definitely. I think that there's a lot of complexity in this portrayal. Uh, there are a lot of scenes. I mean, this is a two hour, almost two and a half hour film. And the dynamics between the characters are a little bit different. You get a, a sense of sort of their backstories and humanity in different ways that don't always come through, I think, quite as clearly, doesn't always come through quite as clearly in the text of Lear. We can talk a little bit about that. But yeah, I think you captured sort of the basic arc of the plot. You know, we can we can talk about sort of what Kurosawa does with the play, how he, you know, changes it, what he sort of adds and brings to it beyond sort of the gender flipping stuff. But I, I do think to go back to something you brought up at the beginning, this is a incredibly visually striking film. And I think it's worth maybe just talking about that a little bit before we um dive into the into the themes. I mean, I would just say to listeners out there, you have to watch this. This is one of those movies that was one of the most striking films I think I've ever seen. I'm not saying it's like vaulting into my top 10 ever category, but it's definitely a fully realized and totally brilliant piece of art. It is um, a masterpiece. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, and I think much more so than Throne of Blood. And Throne of Blood is good, but this movie is really great. Yes. <laughs> um, and yes. a lot, look, I think, I think, Will, part of that is... I mean, one, it's clear that Kurosawa was taking just an immense amount of care. I mean, you used the word painterly earlier, and I think that is a very accurate description. I mean, like, almost every frame seems like it is deliberately, deliberately composed to achieve the maximum impact. And you can see it in the colors that he's using and the way that he's arranging those colors in kind of the choreography of the way people are moving. You know, you also can see it in the editorial choices and the, and the way it's working with the music. I, I mean, I think of that amazing scene. I mean, to me, the highlight of the film, Will, is the scene where Hidetoro and his men have holed up in one of the castles and then they're attacked by Jiro and Taro's men. Mm. And that whole sequence, right? Like, you, you're, you're sort of, you have all the action of it. And then it goes into this sequence that is just music and imagery and you see these horses uh, and samurai riding on their horses through the castle and you see one person after another getting killed and you see the flames engulfing the thing culminating this amazing scene where Hidetoro having failed to kill himself because his sword has been cut in two and he can't he literally can't stab himself emerges at the top of the stairs of this samurai castle that is burning down and he's walking down this long set of stairs towards the armies. And Taro's army in yellow is on one side. And Jiro's army in red is on the other side. Or maybe it's the other way around. And it's just this amazing moment of desolation and despair. So, sorry, that was like that was a little bit of me geeking out on the aesthetics of it. But I, also, I do think that what's happening here is 
Kurosawa is incredibly aware of the visceral and emotional impact of the images that he's creating in a really uh, high-level way. Yeah. And to me, you know, obviously he's divorced from the language of Shakespeare. I mean, I don't think there's really any, you know, there's not even a pretense of using Shakespeare's language at all, of, yeah. of trying to translate into Japan and doing it as poetry, right? But I think, to me, actually, that works really well in this film. And I kind of feel like part of that is because Kurosawa has jettisoned the language but he clearly has a very strong idea about what the underlying emotion of Lear is about. Mm-hmm. And he's realizing that through his images rather than Shakespeare's language. And I actually think that like the emotion of Lear in particular, because it's it's a play that's about much more challenging and like I would say less like friendly in quotes emotions than we're used to. I mean, like even a, like a, a play that's about revenge is still, like, that's still friendly in the sense of it's, like, an audience-friendly subject, right? It's, right? it's got action. It's got intense emotion. Lear is is about these deeper feelings of shame and madness it, yeah. and despair at old age, right? It's, it's just not as user-friendly, I guess, is the word I'm really looking for. And I think, I think words maybe fail in that regard more than in the other context. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the power of this movie is that Kurosawa recognizes that and is getting towards it with with images rather than with words. Yeah, I think that's right. And we'll we'll dig into the themes in just a, a minute. Uh, I just want to throw out some other facts about this picture just to give audience, the audience a little bit of an impression of, of what we're talking about here. So first off, they built a castle. They lit the castle on fire. Like they built an actual castle. They lit the castle on fire. I mean, it's one of the most insane things I've ever seen on film. It's incredible. You have to see it. So there's that. There's the amount of preparation that Kurosawa did for this film. So he storyboarded every shot with um, his own paintings to compose exactly what he wanted to see. You have the costumes. Costumes made by hand for over two years for the cast. You know, these resplendent kimonos. You know, in the climactic battle scene, there are, I think, four different armies all wearing bright different colors. Reds, yellows, blues, black, white, charging, you know, on hundreds of horses across the battlefield. So you have all of those things, and you can really see how this is, again, as I said, you know, an artist at the height of his powers. There's also sort of the tragic backstory of Kurosawa himself when he was making this film. So this is sort of the the third period back end of his catalog. He was actually struggling to raise money for films in the 70s and 80s. He tried to kill himself at one point in the 70s because he wasn't raising money for his pictures and probably for other reasons as well. For for all I know, these things are usually compounded. But um, he made this picture. It was the most expensive film, Japanese film, produced up to that time. Had to look for a lot of financing abroad. His wife dies on the production while he's producing this film, while he's shooting. Takes one day off to mourn her death, and then he goes back to the set to finish the picture. It's really something, and I really think that it's fully realized, I guess is what I'd say, in almost every particular, to the point where it's pretty mind-blowing. But to go back to the themes for one moment, I think one thing that works really well with what he changes vis-a-vis Lear you know, we don't have to dwell on this for too long, but I think with Hidotora, the sort of Lear analog, 
and with Lady Kaide and the families of the sons, one of the things that's really striking to me is um, you get all this context and backstory for the type of man Lear is. And the scenes read completely differently because Kurosawa chose to give this background of like, actually, Hidetoro is a pretty bloodthirsty warlord and he killed Lady Kaide's family, basically burned down their castle. You know, same deal with one of the other son's wives. He is not a nice man, which is why it's so great with the Saburo character at the beginning. I mean, I feel like that opening scene of Lear is Cordelia is just too honest, you know, for this world, but she's not abrasive. She just says, mm-hmm. I love you according to your measure or your due, you know, as my father. No more and no less. Whereas Saburo rudely laughs at his father when his father is saying, well, you know, you'll be loyal to Taro. You, know, you must always support him. And here, you know, I'm going to do this uh, sort of object lesson where I pass all of you arrows and you can break them when it's just a single arrow, but bundled together, you know, you'll never break. And uh, Saburo breaks the three arrows over his knee extremely easily and just says, this is an absurdity. You've raised us in a world of warfare, bloodshed, and betrayal. You can't expect us to actually all get along under this untenable arrangement you want to make. It's crazy. And I just feel like that really brings home the themes of Lear in a way that Shakespeare mm-hmm. doesn't quite like footstomp it in that dramatic of a way, but it really helps. You know, we, we talked on our Lear podcast about how you portray Lear. Is he just sort of a doddering, senile fool? Is he kind of crazy? Does he just have a volatile, mercurial nature? But you don't necessarily know. You know, it's up to the actor and the director of the play to choose. And, you know, it's kind of hard to compare because Kurosawa and um, Tatsuya Nakadai, who plays the Lear character, they had to make those choices in this film. But I guess what I'd say is they chose and they chose really well because I think it adds a completely different level to Lear and it really makes it much more resonant, I think, than when you're just reading it on the page. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel like introducing more backstory to Lear or to Hidetoro and his history and how he's gotten to this position that he's in makes a lot more comprehensible the way he behaves and the fears that he has. You know, in Lear, it's in the play, it's not really clear, to me at least, why he's so reluctant to go to Cordelia. And also, I think it's much harder to understand what he's trying to do. And like, when Regan talks about how he's keeping all these knights, that seems like a bad idea. You kind of agree with her. <laughs> mm. Whereas in this movie, right, Hidetoro is clearly a man with a fearsome past. He's kind of a badass, or was kind of a badass, right? And so... The thing where he's like giving up his power to his son, but he wants to maintain his pomp and dignity, it feels like you understand where that's coming from much better, I think, than in the play. And then similarly, when he is refusing to go to Saburo, I guess to me, I felt like I understood the emotional logic of it much more strongly and like why he's so ashamed. And that ties into Mm. these conversations that he has with Lady Sue, where he knows that he killed this woman's family And he doesn't understand why she is forgiving of him. So, yes, I I guess my feeling was that giving us that backstory made his actions and where he's coming from at the beginning of the play make more sense. And therefore, it's easier to get swept up in the emotion of what he's going through. No, absolutely. I think the only other thematic thing I'd add that I thought was really interesting was... um, 
you know, and this is a, a sort of period accurate thing, but it's also, I think, resonant with the deeper themes of the, you know, we talked about what the Imperial Japan sort of influence might have been on Kurosawa for Throne of Blood. In this case, there's a lot of uh, gunpowder weapons that are used, arquebuses, I believe they're called. This was sort of true in Japan. It had a big fascination in the you know late medieval period, early modern period with gunpowder weapons. But that's ultimately what kills Saburo slash Cordelia is when he's shot by a sniper, effectively. And actually, it also kills Taro in the battle. Another sniper from a tower shoots him, either intentionally or accidentally. It felt somewhat ambiguous. But regardless, you have this immense modern firepower that's introduced. It was hard for me to watch and not think a little bit about the immense destructive power of modern warfare being introduced on a mass scale. I mean, there's tons of scenes where there's just so Mm -hmm. much gunfire in addition to arrows and swords, but the gunfire is really noticeable and is kind of a game changer at multiple points during the movie and is the, the instrument through which the final tragedy is brought to bear. It's really something, it's hard to not think a little bit of atomic weapons and that context in there, but I just, I wanted to mention that because it was very interesting amid the rest of this. But uh, yeah, really an incredible, an incredible film. Definitely a masterpiece. So Will, before we go, I, I think the last thing that I wanted to touch on, and I think we've covered some of this ground already, but I did just want to talk about the two movies together and what we think that Kurosawa's himself bring to Shakespeare, as well as what Shakespeare is allowing Kurosawa to say. How are the two artists informing each other, I think, is my, my final question here. So my take on this is that in some ways, you know, what Shakespeare is giving to Kurosawa is a structure and characters and situations that can be built upon and are sort of flexible and universal enough to be developed at will. And it makes you realize sort of what a genius Shakespeare was in a way. Obviously, there's a highly specific English context to so much of his work, classically informed context to a lot of the plays as well. And yet the situations are human enough and the political development of these different societies are overlapping enough where there's a lot of commonality here. It really does sort of give you the case for universal stories being captured particularly well in Shakespeare and being exportable across cultures. And then for what Kurosawa is bringing to Shakespeare, he's making all the choices and paring away some of the fat or sort of archaic qualities of Shakespeare and and choosing a different visual sensibility to heighten the themes and emotions in ways that don't always leap off the page in the modern context. So in that sense, I, I really think that they both give each other a lot. I don't think it's unfair to say that Kurosawa has realized Lear better than I think Lear is realized on Mm -hmm. the page in and of itself. I mean, that's my opinion, at least. But I also think, to your point, when you were sort of giving the intro, I'm not sure that Kurosawa would have necessarily found quite as powerful a way of giving structure to his original idea for Ron without Shakespeare as sort of a a structure and the con, not maybe not even the concepts, but just characters, arcs, and situations that he could tinker and and tweak. And, you know, in a way, that's kind of an amazing thing because Shakespeare is doing that with these legends in most cases with his own source material. So it just kind of illustrates the iterative kind of nature of art. It just builds on on one another and different people bring different sensibilities and realize the works in different ways. And that can be profound in its own right. I would say that to me, one of the central differences between the two movies 
considered in the context of being Shakespeare adaptations is I feel like Ron is, I agree with you. I mean, I think Ron is actually an improvement on Lear. And I think it is the highest version of what Lear can be because he's trimming it down. And like, yes, he's making his alterations and, and he's trimming down the plot a little bit to make it more comprehensible. But, but basically, I've to me, it feels like he and Shakespeare are essentially united in what they think the work of art is about. And I think that that enables him to make a transcendent work of art that really expresses just in this different context and more powerfully the same thing that Shakespeare was getting at in his own work. Whereas Macbeth, I think that Kurosawa is pulling out selectively elements that he likes and is interested in. But it's like Throne Mm -hmm. of Blood, I think, is more clearly Kurosawa's work of art in the sense that I think he has changed it enough. And I, I think Macbeth is more complex and more interesting than Throne of Blood for all the reasons we talked about before. But it feels like what's happening yeah. in Throne of Blood is Kurosawa wants to talk about something different than what Shakespeare is talking about. And Shakespeare gives him the framework. Like, I think it's interesting that Throne of Blood really probably adheres more closely to the source material in terms of the overall narrative beats. I mean, in Throne of Blood, you can really see point for point, yeah, right? Scene for scene, almost, what corresponds to what in the play. And Ron is like, I think you can see that in like the broad strokes, but not nearly as much in that scene for scene yes, breakdown. Yes, and yet Ron feels much more thematically united to King Lear than in the final analysis, I think Throne of Blood feels thematically united to Macbeth. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, in both cases, I think he brings something to these. I think in the case of, of Ron, it's the visual sensibility and mm-hmm. the backstory. I think he's actually sort of changing the characters in more fundamental ways in terms of what they do and what motivates them. And he makes that more explicit in Throne of Blood. But in, in both cases, really interesting movies. I would say go see Ron. It's streaming on Amazon right now. And I'm sure you can get it on all the platforms. So I would just say to our listeners, you got to see this movie. It's great. Throne of Blood also worth seeing. And by the way, Throne of Blood is available on the Criterion channel a service which everyone should subscribe to. Indeed. Well, that makes me think. Maybe we should try to get the Criterion channel to support the pod here. I would love that. Criterion, we're waiting for your call. We would deeply appreciate the support for Bardflies. And that's our show. Next time on Bardflies, we'll see how another one of Shakespeare's power couples stacks up with Antony and Cleopatra. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.